Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today, of course, my co-host and friend, Joe Trusman, who is a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal, will be joining us. And we're joined by Seth Ransman. Seth is an adjunct fellow at FDD and contributor to FDD's Long War Journal. Also, he is the acting news editor and senior Middle East correspondent and analyst for the Jerusalem Post. Seth, welcome to Generation Jihad. Great to have you on finally. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all ours. Yeah, we've been looking forward to getting you on. We know you've been real busy. Got a lot of things going on and dealing with the war within Israel itself. Let's get like right to that. So listeners know you are based in Israel. And as someone who's living in Israel, tell us about your experience on the day of October 7th and what you've experienced afterwards, both as, you know, a father and a husband and an Israeli citizen and as a reporter. You know, give us a flavor for what's gone down. I mean, that had to have been a horrific experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I had just gotten back from the U.S. actually, and I was I had gotten back the night before on a Friday, and you know, I was looking forward to a nice long weekend and relaxing and sleeping in, and and we were sleeping in. I think around eight in the morning, one of the kids came and started hitting hitting me in the bed and saying, "There's there's sirens, there's sirens." And I said, "What sirens? It's Saturday. Why? What, what, why? What, nothing's ha- nothing's happening on a Saturday." And he said, "No, no. Listen, listen. And look, we're we're kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem, but you know, and sirens don't always travel that far. But I could hear that. And I thought, well, that is weird. There are sirens. So I rushed out to the balcony where I knew I could hear them better. And I thought maybe we're hearing them from across the valley." Um, in the West Bank, because maybe a community over there had a terrorist infiltration or something, or there's an emergency. And what 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 is going on? I mean, I've spent you know 15 or 20 years covering wars in Israel, so sirens in Jerusalem are not that normal. Although when there were wars, you know, usually there'd be a symbolic attack from Gaza on Jerusalem. But you know, the way wars usually worked is there was a big drumbeat up to them, so there was a big expectation. Everyone was waiting for the conflict to start. And Hamas had usually made some big statements. So all of a sudden, as, as we were out in the balcony and there were these sirens going off, and I was looking kind of, because our balcony kind of faces Gaza, even though it's 30 miles away or something, we could suddenly, we suddenly heard a huge explosion over our heads, which I guess was an interception. There was no evidence. We didn't see smoke shells or anything beforehand. And and I was like, oh my God, something is actually happening. And the, the kids started screaming and started running inside. So I went inside and everyone went in the safe room. And that was the beginning of the day. I immediately, of course, you know, started looking on what's happening and started reading Arabic media and stuff and saw that they had this Al-Aqsa flood operation that they had announced. And it was this huge surprise attack. And already, you know, there had been th- actually 3,000 rockets that had been fi- fired in Israel. They just got to Jerusalem at that point. And I started um, I started writing up a story based on, on some of the Arabic media reports. And then I decided with a friend of mine we would drive down to to the Gaza Strip I mean to see what was happening on the front line which was my usual thing whenever there was a war here I would always go down to the, if it was in Gaza I always go down either to Stero or one of the areas right close to the strip where usually you can see what's happening and it's the best place to be when if you're covering covering the conflict I had no idea you know that at the time that there had been 29 points of attack 
and that you know most of the border had been overrun and that most of the communities there had been overrun. So so I got in the car and I guess by 11 or 12 as I was driving down, my friend of mine who was coming from a different direction, he went into Stero and as he was getting there, he started sending pictures of bodies on the street and he said these are bodies someone apparently these are terrorists, someone's just killed them. And I made this strange joking comment. I said, well, that's the best thing to do with them. But I didn't realize the extent of what what we were both about to run into, which is when I also got down to a place called near Yad Mordechai, which is a which is a Israeli uh, community right next to the Gaza border. It's a community that has was founded, I think, by Holocaust survivors and survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and stuff like that. It had been in battles in 48. So this is a community that's seen a lot of action. We couldn't even get into it because then there were police and roadblocks and army. Um, it was chaos. And there was already, we, I was a crash car in the middle of the street in a median with bullet holes, riddled with bullet holes and a, and a body next to it covered in, um, someone had chucked something over it. Uh, and someone had s- said that that was the terrorist and that the guy who'd been shot up in the vehicle had been, had, was Jewish. I guess he'd been taken out by an ambulance or something, but, um, that was the introduction. And we, I stayed there until it got dark. We even then it was not entirely clear how bad it was. I mean, we didn't know that a thousand or twelve hundred people had been killed. We just knew it was really bad and it was total chaos. And um, and I, you know, I, I've been back every few days since then, so I've seen a lot of the changes since then. What's that like? Uh, you know, you, there must have been a, a quite a um, conflict, internal conflict, as a parent and, and a husband. You must be wanting to. I would. My natural instinct is to defend my family, but as a reporter, you had to be so curious to try to see what was happening, witness what was happening, and get the bot to the bottom. How did how did you deal with that one? Look, I mean, because I've covered a lot of Gaza conflicts since you know since disengagement, and I, usually the conflicts in Gaza are kind of self-contained up until October seventh, where which meant that the border was usually secure, and Israel dictated the tempo, which is. Yeah, the enemy could fire lots of rockets or whatever, but Israel was the one that decided, usually decided against a ground invasion. Israel was the one kind of, you know, sussing it out. And then usually you'd have escalation in the West Bank, but it didn't, you know, you never felt that the country was somehow going to be overrun. I definitely would say that on October 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th or so, the first days of the war. And I, you know, with with people, I've colleagues of mine, like Jonathan Spire, good friends of mine, who I spent a lot of time covering war with and who know a lot about this country, you know, all of us were like, mm, is this the beginning of a really serious conflict where Hezbollah invades Israel, the net, you know, later tonight or tomorrow, and then the West Bank also starts a huge intifada? Is there some sort of massive conspiracy at work by Iran? I mean, we just didn't know what we didn't know, but we knew that, look, we knew that reserves were being called up everywhere because when I was leaving my community, every other able-bodied man was leaving his house in a uniform. I mean, they were calling up 300,000 people. So everybody with a set of legs almost was going to do something that day. And there was a sense the country was mobilizing, but there was a sense of chaos. And I definitely, when I got home that night and the subsequent nights, I don't have a, I don't have a firearms license in Israel because in Israel, unlike the United States, you cannot, you cannot just go buy weapons. You have to have a, a firearms license. I definitely felt I, I should have gotten one a few years ago. And so you know, I know it sounds silly, but I I, I slept next to my bed with a with a with a, with a small axe, and and I I got went and bought some um, pepper spray and stuff, and gave it to my wife, and I and I thought, you know, this is the best we're gonna do. <laughs> I mean, well, the rest we can do is barricade the door. Um, 
but it's uh, it was definitely a strange period where it was a lack of clarity in terms of what was going to come next. And I think the Israeli security, you know, uh, top people felt also that that Hezbollah could intervene. That's why a U.S. aircraft carrier apparently turned around. That's why that's why half the army was sent to the north, maybe more than half. Um, and I think publicly Israel said over the next month or so, we're keeping, you know, half the Air Force up there. We're all of a lot of eyes are up in the north. Israel's instinct before October 7th was to keep like 90% of everything focused on the northern frontier and, and Iran. So usually Israel had not focused on Gaza so much. But I think there was a real concern um, that this was always the plan of Hezbollah to do an October 7th type of attack. And, you know, whether, how would it work out if they also chose to intervene? As we know now, they didn't intervene. Um, we know now that, you know, they've continued to shell Israel every single day and people are being wounded and killed. And I've spent a bunch of time up there, but so far, a massive war hasn't broken out. Yeah, that is fortunate that the the massive war with Hezbollah, that would really, I can imagine that would strain the Israeli resources. Um, Gaza certainly is uh, a challenge for, for the IDF. And that's what I want to ask you next, uh, Seth. The, your perspective on the, uh, the IDF, or Israel Defense Force, operations in Gaza. Can you see, do you have a, a, or do you have a understanding of what the IDF plan is in Gaza? I'm talking militarily. I'm not talking long-term what happens after hopefully the defeat of Hamas, but the, the road to destroy Hamas. Do, do you get the sense the IDF is operating on a coherent plan here? I would say it's a coherent plan in the sense that it was fully thought out because I don't think anyone expected this in Israel. I mean, this is a this is a a black swan type of event. I mean, I don't know if there was a guy in a room somewhere hiding out in the defense ministry who was like shouting for 10 years, this is gonna happen. I mean, we know that like there were there was, I mean, or Lieberman and people had warned about this, but I get the sense that the, the, the security establishment just didn't think this would happen. So when it did happen, of course, all the security forces responded. And I think then very quickly, everyone had to decide, OK, what do we do now? Well, this is a game changer so that the, the statements from the top level was we're going to destroy Hamas. There won't be Hamas. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, when Sinwar, the head of Hamas, is, he's a walking dead man, as they said from the second day. So far, he's still alive, but we'll see. Um, so I do think that the first reaction of the of the machine, the security machine was to do what Israel knew how to do the last 20 years, which is we'll do a bombing campaign. That's what Israel's always done in Gaza. If they shoot a thousand rockets, Israel shoot Israel destroys a thousand targets. A very a very kind of disproportional proportional response. So like that's really what Israel was doing for a while. It was managing the conflict or what's called mowing the grass. So if they shoot a thousand rockets, Israel destroys a bunch of little targets, and then there's a tar a little list of them, and it's all broken down nicely for media. Everyone can quote it. it's great. It's not clear that it actually accomplishes anything. So in terms of a long-term defeat of Hamas, because that was never the goal. So I think the initial the initial phase was not to was to figure out how to defeat Hamas in a few weeks or a month, but first of all, just know, let's do what we know how to do. We have a target bank of a seven thousand or ten thousand targets. Just destroy everything you can find, which I think is what they did. They um, they bombed. I don't know. Now they say twenty two thousand targets. I mean. You know how targeting works. A target could be a coffee cup or it could be a giant building. I mean, you never know what is an actual target, but they've, they've, they've bombed a lot of things. And I'm sure that that was the initial response. 
we'll give the, the Air Force has a few weeks to bomb everything they can find, which is what happened in the first Gulf War, uh, the, how the Americans destroyed the Iraqi army. Of course, as you know, the Americans were destroying a conventional force where you bomb a bunch of tanks and you destroy command and control. But Hamas doesn't have tanks. It had yeah, it has command and control, but it's hard to find them. So, so therefore, your target bank is a bit of a problem because you're not taking apart a conventional force. You're destroying a terrorist force, which has spent 20 years or 15 years figuring out how to be a terrorist force. I mean, building things that you can't find. So I think they spent a few weeks trying to think, okay, what do we do for the ground maneuver? What's step two? And step two was, and actually I think step two was well was well planned tactically. Um, it was to cut the Gaza Strip in half. It was to not do exactly what they did in 2009, 2014, when they did the previous ground operations, which in 2014, they just kind of went into the areas around the cities and chewed up areas around them so they could dig out tunnels because they were finding tunnels. They didn't want to go into the population centers. In 2009, they did go in heavy in Gaza, but I don't think 2009 was looked at as a very um, successful campaign. So the smart move here was what they did was very interesting. They cut the Gaza Strip in half by taking the 36th Division, which is called the Rage Division. It's an armored, it's an armored division. It has all the mean, tough, uh, brawny units. And it just drove them right across the middle of the Gaza Strip and cut Gaza City off from the south. They understood then that wherever Yaha Sinwar was, which he would, may have been in the north initially, he got away to the south, that they could then they could then slowly encircle and destroy the Hamas units in the north in Gaza City, which is what they did. They spent three weeks destroying them. Uh, and, you know, you can listen to what they say they killed. Thousands of Hamas members, they just they destroyed several battalions. It was. They also went down along the along the water to hook up with the the kind of cross stroke they'd done. So it was a very interesting, smart tactical maneuver. I don't think Hamas saw it coming, and um, it put pressure on Hamas. Then there was the hostage exchange. I my view, I think Hamas has continued to still dictate things a, a bit to Israel in terms of like the tempo of things. But once the hostage deal was off on December first, Israel then did something I think else, which was a bit surprising for Hamas. They drove. They took their 98th, uh, the 98th division, I think, with the uh, with the commandos and a bunch of guys, and just drove right into Khan Yunus. And that was another, I think, smart stroke, which was to go right after Sinwar and his leadership in Khan Yunus. Sinwar is from Khan Yunus. However, again, where is the where is the final thing? Where is where is Sinwar? Why hasn't he been captured and killed? Only one hostage has been freed with military force. Uh, 138 remain. So if you judge what Israel says it's trying to do, which is destroy Hamas or something like that, um, and rescue hostages, um, neither of those things have been accomplished. So there's a lot more to do. You know, I think the Ministry of Defense uh, chief says it's phase three by now, so there's got to be another one. And I guess we'll see what happens next. I do think now there's, I don't, I wouldn't say clutching at straws, but they have to think, okay, what's the next big brush stroke? Do we go along the Philadelphia corridor to cut off Gaza from Egypt? We have a million, 1.5 million civilians that have fled all this fighting. How do we filtrate them back? How do we find Sinwar? What what is left to capture? I mean, there's, I don't know, Israel probably is now captured 30 or 40 percent of Gaza, but it's still Israel doesn't want to occupy every city in Gaza. I mean, it doesn't, Israel's not really built now to run. Palestinian cities. It's this isn't 1985. Yeah, I think that's a you know, I think they're making a mistake there. They do. I mean, if you want to get Sinwar, he's going to bleed out into the areas 
where the IDF isn't. I, I, the, I mean, if the goal is to capture key leaders, leaders like Sinwar and to defeat Hamas, they're going to have, you know, 30 to 40 percent or 50 to 60 percent or 70, 80 percent. That's just not going to be enough. But um, we'll see. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, it, it you know, over time, they, they've developed their strategy over time. Hey, uh, Seth, you know, I was thinking, uh, I agreed with a lot of what you were saying. Um, I think the problem for the Israelis, and we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast and previous podcasts, is that, you know, time is not on Israel's side, right? So and what, what, what Hamas and to effect, to an effect, uh, or, or essentially what Sinwar is doing is just waiting it out like it has, but like, like they have had previously, right? The previous conflicts, they just wait it out, wait it out because eventually things will stop. Well, there will be a ceasefire. So I think that's the strategy now again, but, um, I am curious. I know you, you, you kind of talked about going to Southern, uh, Israel, but I know you've done reports from there as well. Uh, I, I think I, I saw some video you took to, as well. Uh, maybe rocket fire or, or, or something along those lines, but just curious, tell me what you saw at the Gaza border. Uh, you know, when, when you would go there, you know, I don't know how many times you've been there already, but I'm just curious, uh, did you see any rockets being fired or, or what kind of IDF activity did you see that you can, that you can tell us? Sure. I mean, so we were certainly under, under lots of rocket fire. And, um, one of the weird ironies of going to the Gaza border is the closer you get to Gaza, you somehow are in a bizarre way safer because the rockets are being fired over your head, usually at, at Ashdod or Eshkelon or Tel Aviv, or especially in the early days of the war when they were trying to always hit those far places because they didn't, you know, it, it, the IDF wasn't yet in Gaza. Now they don't have many rockets, apparently, or they don't have places to fire them from. Um, so, you know, look, I'd say the, the toughest day we had was the second day. The first day was chaos. But the second day, uh, my friend Jonathan Spire and I, we went down there and we we got down to, again, near Yad Mordechai. We decided we'd go over by Zikim because we had heard that there had been infiltrations there the first day, and we we thought we'd go to some of the communities there. We thought we'd interview residents, so we we didn't really kind of, again, we didn't fully understand what quite had happened, which is that some of these communities had been overrun, and that, and that actually the security forces had never fully secured them since then. So people were being evacuated, and we were trying to go in, and... You know, we ran into a few IDF troops, and I guess they just thought we were crazy enough. They kept waving us through, and we had press a press thing. But uh, we got to a point, and we said, "Well, we asked the guys, well, is there any civilians around? Can we interview them?'" They said, "Well, we don't. We think most of them left. We're not really sure, but we're if you want, you can try to look for some." So we drove around, and I told Jonathan, "He said, you know what we'll do? Let's drive around towards Zikin Beach because the Home Front Command is over there, and I know that they were attacked yesterday. Let maybe we'll see some action or something's happening over there." And look, there was a lot of things happening around us. I mean, there were tanks driving. We, we could see evidence tanks had driven through some of the fields in front of us. You know, there was rocket fire. I mean, we could hear shooting. We could hear some 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 tank fire. But it wasn't like a total, it wasn't like there was some huge battle going on. So we drove up the road and we saw a lot of evidence of war. We saw cars that had been hit, you know, we saw body, more bodies. We saw cars that had been shot up. But it looked like most of it had kind of ended because it looked like someone had put stuff over the bodies and... We at some point got to a very strange, eerie scene where there was a an IDF van. It had an IDF plates on it, and it was still running, and there was no one in it. And we were like, as we drove by it, my friend said, but why is it still running? I said, it's weird. And then we looked up ahead, and there were there were two, two bodies on the street, 
that had been, I guess, hit by a naval naval fire because we heard subsequently right after that that there had been an, an incident there where the Navy had found seen a bunch of terrorists that they hadn't found the day before, and they had they had then uh, neutralized them, and that had just happened. And and I I said we're in a we're in, I told my friend I said we're in zombie land. We better get out of here. <laughs> so we drove back. And then we got to a place where there were IDF tanks that were maneuvering, uh, and we met some of the reservists and started chatting with them. And one of them said to us, because we said something like, what do you think about today? Or something? He said, this is our 1973 war. You know, we're, we're driving into this action just like in 73, where, you know, Israel was surprised by the attack, but then very quickly tried to go on the offensive. They didn't know, of course, those tankers that they were going to sit there for three weeks after that and just wait, because nothing actually happened after that. Um, I mean, it was a waiting game. but. The next few days later, I went down to Sterot, which is a big city. And by that point, they were evacuating Sterot, which to my mind was unheard of. I mean, it was one thing to evacuate communities that had just been attacked, where there were hundreds of casualties. In fact, some of the communities, by the way, it took three days in some cases to liberate the communities. The people sat in safe rooms. Imagine a safe room is about the size of this room. They had locked. They didn't, you know, a lot of safe rooms couldn't be locked. They had the jerry-rigged locking system. They literally sat and waited and they didn't know, you know, who's coming, if anyone's ever going to come, did the world end? Uh, even when there were IDF uniforms outside, the Hamas guys were wearing sometimes IDF tactical gear. So they had no idea. I mean, sometimes Hamas, by the way, would use hostages to go on speaking Hebrew to try to lure people out. So um, anyway, we we got into Sterot and we met with the police. The police in Sterot had fought off the initial wave of terrorists and the terrorists had had maps of Sterot. It's a pretty big city. It's like 30,000 people. And the terrorists decided to go and attack the police station itself, uh, which which is interesting. They didn't just gun down civilians. They had a very clear goal. Go in the police station, massacre all the police. So they And they succeeded in their goal, basically. They got into the police station. They killed the cops that were in there. The police didn't have time to put on tactical vests and armor and get their M16s and everything. So, so later on, more police came and laid siege to their own station and then blew their own station up to kill all, to kill all the terrorists. So... So it was a, it was pretty crazy. We met with the police commanders, and they were had then taken over a community center. By this time, they were all beefed up in all the gear that they needed because when they first confronted terrorists, they went in with sidearms. The terrorists were far better armed than the, than the police in many cases. And um, we met with a police elite uh, counterterrorism squad, and they said to us they had been going out on nightly raids because there were still lots of terrorists hiding out in vineyards and stuff. And there were all these like mixed multitude of people that had come over from Gaza to loot and things. Um, and they told us, listen, you know, just to be straight, they were like, listen, the rules of engagement have totally changed. They, they've told us anyone that's out after dark, just we can, we can eliminate them They're, because there's no civilians here now. All the civilians are leaving. So we assume anyone we see is a terrorist. Uh, and they said they'd eliminated a lot of, a lot of people that they, I mean, look, they're, they're, they're not, there aren't a lot of cases of friendly fire from that time, but but they had there. What there are cases of is the degree to which we were driving back and forth, and those fields were still infested by by threats. I mean, they, it took weeks to find all the people that had come in. Um, and then subsequently, I went back again and again. I finally got into some of the kibbutzim that had been attacked, like kibbutz um, Biri, which had been overrun, and we got to see, you know, this very nice small lush. You know, kibbutzim are very communal communities. Everything's small. All the houses are simple. A lot of times in some of these really more communist style kibbutzim, you know, the people don't even own their own cars. Cars have numbers. And you go to the, the like the, the the administration and you say, well, I'd like to use a car tomorrow. And they say, well, you can have number 25. And the next week you might get car number six. <laughs> so 
these places, you know, are very tight knit communities and that they had been totally overrun. Some of them had, you know, 50 or hundred casualties, dozens of people kidnapped. And, um, in Beery, we saw how they had taken it back using in one case, I guess, tanks to drive over a few buildings that had, um, or bulldoze part of them where there was hostages being kept. And they told us that, you know, miraculously, there was a long standoff with some of the terrorists, but they had gotten some of the hostages out and some of them they had not gotten out. And we saw one of the, uh, I guess you call it like a technical Toyota Helix truck with a, that they would have put up, that the terrorists, we saw it was all crashed and just partly destroyed. And we saw the terrorist gear like um, terrorists had brought, you know, medical stuff for them to put bandages on and stuff in Arabic and stuff. So we saw all the detritus that they'd left behind. I mean, uh, there was it was all just sitting there. We could see what they no one had bothered yet at that time to then clean it all up. So, uh, and then this tip, I was there today. I was on the border of Gaza today in Stero, and I was had a very nice experience. We drove to see a um, IDF soldiers who operate small drones um, or UAVs, and um, we drove along the border road, which has had up had been up until now totally closed, and. It was nice to see, you know, civilian traffic again on some of these roads. Not everything is open, but um, and you can see in the in the distance there's smoke rising from Gaza from all the fighting. But and you hear artillery all the time going out. I mean, it's a war zone, but it but there were you. I felt for the first time in two and a half months almost, you know, people are driving here again. People feel it's normal. They don't feel they're they don't they, there aren't people telling you don't drive down that road. You know, you'll be hit by snipers and mortars or something. It's like it's little by little, you know, I'm not saying re restaurants not quite opening, people haven't really returned, but it's getting there. I was going to say, uh, I can't believe how you were driving down there in southern Israel with, with everything going on uh, just right after October 7th, just because, yeah, like you're saying there are terrorists still out there, right? And um we were defended. All we had, I we, you know, I I begged, borrowed, and steal. I got, I bought, I got a little. I had um an armored helmet, uh, whatever it is, classification two or three A, whatever the one that like stops like pistol rounds, but not rifles, which is you know whatever the best you can do. And then we had, I have body armor that I borrowed from a friend of mine, like a press thing. And then right. I um put a knife in my glove compartment. I thought, well, you know. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> That's uh, license, yeah, Seth. get that license. <laughs> yeah. Time. <laughs> But um, actually, my friend of mine had a gun license, so we, we did have. A, sometimes I had someone with me with, a, with at least at least one gun for two people. It's like that movie with Stalingrad where they, they give yeah, one right. rifle and they <laughs> give the other guy bullets. <laughs> um, but okay, so, no, no, that's still it's that's still unbelievable. But uh, but, yeah, but glad you made it out uh, safe, uh, obviously, safely, obviously. But um, I'm curious. We can we, let's let's move to another to another front. I'm I'm, I'm curious about. I know you did some work in the West Bank and an embed there actually with uh, the IDF. And we know how the West Bank has been quite active uh, for the last, oh my gosh, like two and a half years now uh, with Palestinian armed groups, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and a bunch of others, something that we followed very closely at Long War Journal. Uh, but I'm just curious what your, tell us about your experience there. What'd you do? Uh, and just what what did you see? Just um, I'm very yeah. I'm just curious to see what you experienced. Yeah, I mean, I've covered the West Bank, you know, for a very long time. I actually I I, I used to teach at a Palestinian university, so I used I've spent a lot of time in the West Bank, and um, I've spent a lot of time covering clashes with the IDF. Uh, uh, sometimes on both sides, you know. I mean, 
uh, this time was interesting. I didn't, I hadn't really done an embed like this. I was invited to go with an IDF unit that was going to demolish the house of a terrorist. Israel has a policy since the British mandate. I mean, it's a law that goes back from the British mandate. Israel adopted that law to, if someone's a terrorist, there can be a, there can be a court order, not in all cases, but in some cases, well, they will destroy the terrorist house. And I learned this on the trip. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I thought maybe they just go in and blow it up. It, it's very, very technical. They go in and destroy just the floor, just with the guy where he lived. And then, for instance, you see this room I'm in. They don't destroy. This, we're in an apartment. This is a multi-story apartment similar to the one they blew up. So they don't destroy the stuff that's you know, retaining walls and stuff that keeps up the rest of the apartment building. They just destroy the things that, that are not uh, integral, the building and structure itself. And I jokingly said to the guy afterward, uh, the demolition guy, I said, yeah, but can't you just use jackhammers for this? I mean, isn't this just a renovation job? He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I've, I've spent 20 years doing this. You must use you must use precise dynamite. <laughs> anyway, it was a very strange experience. I mean, I drove into an IF base at night, uh, you know, wandered around, and they, 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 they kind of seconded me to a team of infantry. And uh, they counted us all off, you know, one to 20 in case someone disappears on the mission. They'll know that number 19 isn't there. And they were like, okay, you're number eight. And I was like, okay. So we all went in. We piled into a bus. And then the bus had an escort of several armored um, vehicles called a Tigris or a Tigris. It's a, it's an ugly looking vehicle. It looks kind of like an, an armadillo with, uh, with wheels anyway. So we went into the West Bank. This is near Modine kind of. Um, it's called Ephraim. The area is called Ephraim. It's near it's near Benjamin or whatever. So they the goal was they're going to go in a village. It's not a very big village. They have, I guess, they had intel about the village, what to expect, apparently. Um, in most of these villages, they're not going to expect much encounters because the, te the, the terrorists might come from there, but the village itself is not necessarily well armed, especially in this area. I mean, it's not Janine. It's not a big city full of weapons. So they weren't expecting live, you know, fire confrontations like that, but they're well armed and they have a hundred infantry with them. And they go in, they send border police in first to disperse rioters. There were some rioters. We heard them being dispersed. We saw fires on the road. Um, the kids had put uh, lit some um, tires on fire. So, and uh, and we're in the bus and we're sitting there waiting. And I thought, you know, this is just not the way I'd like to be is in a bus waiting for something to happen because I feel like if a sniper shoots at the bus or it catches on fire, we're all kind of like stuck in here, but whatever. I mean, eventually they let us out and I was like, okay, at least we can, at least we're out. We can walk around. So we walked into the village with the, with the unit and, and the guys came from the engineering department. And by that time, the soldiers and the border police had moved all the residents away from the house. They moved them a few hundred, half mile away or something so that no one gets hurt. Um, Again, it was a it was a basically five hours of watching them drill holes in a building and then and then and then eventually demolish a very small part of it. It was an interesting experience. I later learned that the guy who was the terrorist was actually a story I'd reported about three months ago, where a lone soldier who was from Ukraine, a, a Jewish guy, I guess, or he had come to Israel. He was actually a bone marrow donor. He joined the IDF and he and he was then killed by this terrorist. He'd been run over by the guy. And so it was interesting to kind of see how to close the circle on that and get to see the end of it all. Um, what I learned from the operation interviewing the guys was they said they do these raids every night. They don't do home demolitions every night. They've only been like one or two in a few months. They do raids every night to arrest people. And in their in their area, they didn't give precise numbers, but I understood throughout the West Bank, 
we're talking about thousands of arrests. And of, of, of those arrests, some some certain number, like a thousand or more are Hamas members, but there's a whole bunch of other people being arrested since October 7th. And as you said, before that, there has been a huge amount of activity in the West Bank, uh, especially in the Northern West Bank, but this is not the North. So what I learned from this was, here's an area in Ephraim, which is not necessarily an area um, that's known for lots of you know clashes. And yet the, 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 the reserve, they're all the guys I was with were reservists. So they've been in the army years ago. They're coming back to do service. They describe this as a ridiculously high tempo of operations, which means Israel was really, really going into to, to crack down. And I have to say, having done that and then having learned a lot about the Gaza war, although I have not gone into Gaza, I've been invited a bunch of times on embeds and it's always been like the wrong timing. But as I mentioned before, in Gaza, they've basically, when they go in a neighborhood, the IDF drops leaflets and tells everyone to leave. They'll make, they've made millions of calls just to get people to leave. They don't want any civilians in areas where there's contact with the with Hamas. So what effectively that means is when IDF takes over an area, there's no civilians there by that time because they've left. Then there's been a battle. And then the areas, there's no one there. So it's totally the opposite of what's happening in the West Bank, where the IDF is used to operating amongst civilians all the time. Um, they may not. They may not, they may move them away a bit, but they're used to the idea that this is a civilian neighborhood. Like where we were, I mean, look, you're blowing up a guy's house. It's not really, it's not great, but they're very respectful of the community. They not, they not, they don't make any trouble. They're not banging on doors. They're not, they're not doing anything beyond what they need to do as an infantry unit operating in a small village. So it's totally different. And I I kind of understood then when people say, look, the only way to stop something like October 7th is to always be doing activity like this. Because some people in Israel said that you always have to be operative and doing things and not let terrorist infrastructure grow. And I kind of understood at that point. I said, well, you're right. If you're always going in and out and you have the control of the area, even if it, and even in the daytime, you kind of give it back. But you have control at night when you want to do things. Then there's not going to be any terrorists here, because if you because if there are, then eventually you'll run into them and then you'll then that person will be arrested or eliminated. So it was a certainly interesting experience to see two different types of operations. I've also I guess we can mention the north. It's a whole other border. But like, right, <laughs> it was a totally it was really interesting to see. And as I said before, the IDF is not is not built today or neither is Israel to run Palestinian cities and neither villages either, because, as I said, we went into a village. And they leave in the morning. I mean, actually, they, they purposely left at like five in the morning. They're like, no, we don't stay when the sun's up. We leave. <laughs> this is a village. It's a. They understand it. Civilians are here. The civilians have to live their lives. They had a job to do. And then they left. So right. it was very interesting to see the that contrast. And I'm and I'm curious. Um, you already mentioned it a little. You were in the north, is right? Is that correct? And uh, along the Lebanon border, or then Golan? Where Where did you go exactly? I've been up to Lebanon border a few times uh, since October 7th, and then I've been, I went to a training in the Golan for one of the reserve divisions that mm-hmm. is brigades that is preparing for whatever may come next. That brigade has been sitting on the border for two months, uh, basically being shot at um, by Hezbollah, and the guys are not able, I mean, they, they're not exactly able to shoot back. I mean, Israel retaliates, but the infantry sit, the infantry that sit there don't necessarily retaliate. They're kind of just there. So, it's been a complicated, difficult situation for those guys, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the the northern border has been totally evacuated. It's a ghost town. I mean, it's forty communities. 
I don't know how many people it is, like 90,000 people or something, uh, totally evacuated. By the way, totally unprecedented in Israel history. Israel's never done this. Israel never in its history did it evacuate communities. In fact, the whole point of putting little tiny communities on every little hill was so that you wouldn't evacuate them. They would create little um, like tower and stockade-like areas to kind of protect the border. Um, you know, I interviewed an old guy up there from a community called Stula. He was actually a Kurdish Jewish guy um, who had he's he was originally lived in a place called Al-Kosh, and then he moved to Stula. He founded the community, or his parents did. And he said in the 60s when they founded it, they used to go across into Lebanon to buy food because it was easier to get easier to get to a Lebanese supermarket than an Israeli one. They used to play football or what Americans <laughs> call soccer with, with with Lebanese Shiite kids. I mean, wow. of course, it's wow. all changed now. But but he was like, yeah, you know, our neighbors over there. I mean, it's unfortunately it's all Hezbollah land now. But um, but the point was that they would never have left this community. Uh, now they have most of the, the civilians because they don't want to end up like the people next to Gaza. The older dudes like this guy, you know, cradling his M4 with his name on it and all with all his extra gear on it. He was he didn't mind staying, but he's seen a lot of bad things, but but obviously his kids and stuff, they're not going they're not going to be there. Beth, the over the weekend, I believe it was yesterday, Hamas issued a threat that if its demands weren't met, that the the hostages that it's holding, the number I've seen is about 137, 138, that they would be killed. How is this viewed within Israel? How do Israeli people feel about this today? Are they are, are they understanding that there's a bigger picture here, the defeat of Hamas, or do they are they looking for the hostages to be released first? What's just the general mood when it comes to the hostage situation? I think it's very complicated. I mean, I think that, you know, Israel is still in a state of shock. I think most people here have not fully, uh, well, maybe they will never recover from what happens. So, you know, people are just trying to deal with this day by day. Look, there is, look, like in every society, there's people on the far right, far left with all sorts of different and sometimes interesting opinions. So you will, there is a talking point out there that is basically this. It's, it's this, it's, we don't, that's not the hostages, you know, let's sacrifice them. That's too bad. We should never give in any, we should never give in to Hamas. Don't trade anyone for them. We'll never trade another terrorist. We've already learned from what happened with Gilad Shalit. We traded a thousand terrorists. We let Yahya Sinwar go. In fact, trading the terrorists led to October 7th. We're not going to do this again. We'll never trade anyone else. And any hostages, we, any hostages that all that their view is the hostage people that want them back at any price are almost traitors to the country because they're willing to give away the country for these hostages. That's one view. There's another view, of course, that is the ceasefire now crowd, which I saw them in Tel Aviv, a bunch of protesters last night. They say ceasefire now, ceasefire in costs, give back, we'll release all of the prisoners, whatever it takes, just we need every, we need to get every single person back. Um, that's another view. I would say the average Israeli, like lots of countries in the world where the average person is not involved in these two, two extremes, the average person, I think, is like, listen, we really had to get the kids back and anyone under 18. That was a huge priority. It was right to do the deal on uh, November 24th, where it was three for one, which is in Israel's historical view, kind of a good deal. It was re releasing women and children, Palestinians, who were most of them not murderers, you know, for people that are hostages. And that's as unfair as that is, you know, this and we should never have let them be taken hostage in the first place. So you've got to get the kids back. A country's priority is to its children first. and It's most vulnerable. So the view was get the children out, get the elderly people out. Um, 
and then try to get the women out. And usually when they said women, it's interesting how they phrased it in Israel or how it was understood. Women, and, there was women and children, and they said Hamas may not break up families. But women that were single, well, maybe they'll be left in Gaza. Unfortunately, some of those women uh, were seen on the videos on October 7th. Some of them were actually, you know, idea of soldiers that were kidnapped, uh, members of observation units. Um, and they were they were in the video, at least one of them was quite brutally treated. So, you know, people have spread all sorts of rumors about what's been going on there. You know, we don't know. But I think the middle, the middle person, the middle Israel is saying, you know, Hamas lied after during the deal. They stopped releasing people. So now they have to be destroyed. And now, and unfortunately, you know, you can't put two, hold both ideas in your head. A, destroy them, but B, get out the 138. And I think Israel has bifurcated those two, those two mindsets, which is Hamas must be just totally destroyed, every single piece of it. And yes, we want these people back. And you say, well, yeah, but wait, how do those go together? Won't they probably be, uh, won't some of them be eliminated, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, collateral damage if you go in, like if you go into a bank where people are holding hostages and sometimes hostages don't make it out. I mean, I think a lot of people have understood sometimes hostages don't come home. And some some percentage of those hostages are, you know, male IDS soldiers. And I think there's a sense that those people are casualties of war. And that's the way war works, unfortunately. And that's just the price you pay for living, you know, for having Israel. I think people, I think most people in Israel accepted that that's the price people pay for having Israel anyway, since 19, you know, a long hundred years ago, which is some people are going to die. But the purpose is that you live in the end and you create a state. And that's how it works. You don't sacrifice children. You don't let people take hostages of older people and stuff. Yeah, just the, you know, the hostage, free the hostages at any cost crowd. There, I mean, I think that's a short-sighted view. I, I think you're right. It's, a, it's it is very complicated. It's, look, there's probably ten or fifteen percent on each side that are of the view a freedom at any cost, or we'll just we don't care about them. Let's just you know, okay, or we'll just let them go. There's like this too, but there's like I think just you know, eighty percent of the people in the same place. And remember, the hostages are from all types of society. I mean, we're talking. There are Bedouin Arabs who are hostages. There are Thai workers. There are. Uh, elderly communist kibbutzniks. There are, you know, young partiers and hipsters. There's, there's just, it, 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 there's people from all walks of life. And I think that's why, you know, it's not a simple, so it's not a simple agenda. There's not a simple talking point about it. And I, and I think the average, the average person in Israel is kind of in the same headspace. Beth, thank you for joining us today. It was a fascinating inside look as to what's happening inside of Israel. You be safe and keep keep up the great work. We're eager to see what you have to report next. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.